the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine. And you're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to The Week on 3 with me, Noreen Mir. It's one of my favourite bit of radio because I have specially prepared for you some of the highlights of Radio 3. I have birds, music, dating apps and also an author who address the issue of human trafficking. Let's start with Thursday's Back Chat, where hosts Janice Wong and Jenny Lam spoke to John Chong, who is a research officer at the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society, who tells us about their latest census, which has recorded a 36% increase in one of Hong Kong's most popular species. This is the seven years of our sparrow census. We started the sparrow census since uh, 2016, and the aim of it is to ha- uh, help to understand the urban ecosystem as well as let the public to try to participate in scientific studies. And uh, we got about 88 survey routes covering 18 districts in Hong Kong and including six land use, the residential areas, the commercial areas, industrial areas, recreational areas, village type areas and agricultural areas. And Along each route, each survey route, the surveyors will record the sparrow numbers, nest numbers, and the behaviors of the, of the sparrows. I mean, um, we try to estimate based on the uh, sparrow numbers they record uh, for the populations of sparrows in Hong Kong. And for this year, we estimated to have 287,000 sparrows in Hong Kong. And when compared to last year, which was about 200 and 11,000 uh, sparrows, uh, we record an increase of about 36% compared to last year's. Wow, so, uh, yeah. so 36% increase, and that's quite significant. Do, do you have any ideas why? Um, to be very honest, we really don't know why we got such a large increase uh, for this year population size. And we did try to correlate some of the factors we could affect the sparrow populations, like the red factors, uh, the temperature, the humidity, and the rainfall. But we cannot find any particular correlations between uh, the weather and the uh, population size of the sparrow. So, um, you know, I was looking this up about about sparrow numbers in general, um, and I found out that in India and Pakistan, for example, they've had 80% decline, 60% decline. And this has to do with deforestation and, and basically destroying the habitat. Now, in reverse... Over the pandemic, we've maybe had less construction work going on um, and basically just less disturbance to the environment. Have you looked into whether that's a contributory uh, factor into the sparrow numbers? Yeah, that's a, that's a very great question. Uh, indeed, in the situation in Hong Kong is, could be quite different from the foreign countries. Uh, although um, the common name for this, bird, uh, for this bird is called tree sparrows, so they are uh, in the natural uh, position or uh, in the natural environment, they will last in the forest. But in Hong Kong, we mostly find them in urban parks or, uh, or so-called recreational areas or in, uh, or in uh, residential areas or village-type areas. 
so they are well adapted to urban lifestyles in Hong Kong. Um, so the deforestations or habitat changes might not uh, pose threats to the uh, sparrow populations in Hong Kong. But uh, we also well noticed that some human uh, induced potential threats uh, could also pose threats to the sparrows in Hong Kong, like using glue traps for trapping rodents, we could also accidentally trap wild animals like sparrows or even other birds or feral cats, which definitely harm, uh, harm or even kill uh, wild animals if we using, keep using this food trap. And moreover, pesticides. Uh, the pesticides would uh, likely to kill invertebrates or insects, which are important food source for the sparrow during the breeding seasons of them. So, you know, sparrows are pretty low down the food chain as far as birds are concerned. 36% increase for the sparrows presumably means more food for the predators. What impact do you see overall? Um, do you think this increase will have on the bird population in general or, or, or just uh, uh, the ecosystem in general? Um, at the moment, uh, it is hard to tell whether we, we will see any um, very impact. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, hard, it's hard to see any impact on the ecosystem uh, by itself because um, what 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 we think is that there will be natural fluctuations of uh, population size for all the wildlife animals in the world. So we can't tell this. The increase of this year is just natural fluctuations or due to other uh, unknown factors. Um, but what we really concern is the trend of the whole population, because as what you mentioned about uh, the global trend of the tree sparrow is, in, is indeed decreasing. But at moments, we cannot really deduce the trend for the local sparrow populations simply because we only got seven years data. And from Maybe from public perspective, seven years is a long time. But for any similar studies conducted in European countries or in America, um, they have already conduct uh, they have already conducted uh, similar studies for the breeding uh, urban birds for from maybe eighties um, or nineties. So they have already got about twenty or thirty years monitoring data. Which, what, are the, what are the kind of birds do you monitor? Uh, Other than sparrows. Only sparrows? Um, sparrows? Okay. Yeah, yeah, they all look at the sparrows, but a different kind of sparrows, house sparrows. And we, we got the tree sparrows, but yeah, they're, they're relatives. Right. And Mr. Chong, uh, uh, according to your, your census, I'm just looking at uh, some of the results right now. Um, it says that Sham Shui Po uh, continues to have the highest density of sparrows out of all districts, uh, followed by Chun Moon and Wong Tai Sin. What's the situation like, uh, for example, in a Kowloon city? Yeah, we also record quite a number of uh, tree sparrows in Kowloon city. And yeah, we, we definitely see sparrows loves, uh, loves the old towns like what you mentioned, some sort of district, Kowloon City district, because the old buildings uh, provide excellent shelters for the sparrow to build their nest on during the breeding season. Because uh, the eaves 
uh, the pipes or the fans or the air conditioner can help them to get rid of the uh, predators of the sparrows so that yeah, we could increase the chance of their success in breeding. And that was John Chong, a research officer at the Hong Kong Bird Watching Society, on Thursday's Back Chat. Let's turn to something a bit more serious this morning. Let's turn to human trafficking and the fact that it is a global endemic. On Thursday's 123 show, I spoke to award-winning filmmaker, author and philanthropy consultant Sylvia U. Friedman about her book, which is called A Long Road to Justice, Stories from the Front Lines in Asia, which aims to raise awareness on the plight of victims from imperial Japanese sex slavery during World War II, who are also known as comfort women. In her book, she talks about human trafficking and also its exploitations. Sylvia starts by telling us how she first came across her first comfort woman and how she made that connection. So I first heard, I'll backtrack, I was turning 16 and uh, this was the early 90s, 1990s, and um, I, my mother had read uh, a story about Kim Hatsun, the first Me Too survivor or the Me Too activist uh, in 1991 to come forward and she was silenced for 50 years. And she didn't come forward, even though she was raped by multiple Japanese soldiers a day on the front lines of war, uh, I think in China and in another country, um, she was so ashamed and afraid and there was nowhere for her to go and share her story because you know, sex is taboo, rape is taboo at that time. And so my mom told me this story because it's it's in, you know, even China, everyone knows about what happened to the girls and women. And there are like stories of um, girls, in, in Korean girls in the Korean countryside who are washing themselves obsessively because they were trying to, you know, rub off the stain and the trauma of, of repeated um, military rapes um, or military sex slavery. And um, so I, my mom told me about it at that age, you know, when I was turning 16, and I didn't realize that my history textbooks were Eurocentric. And so that was, was a very rude awakening for me. And I never forgot it. So, you know, from 16, flash forward to about mid 20s, when I was a junior reporter at a TV station in Canada. And I heard from another activist that, oh, there's there's a survivor of Japanese wartime sex slavery who's flying into Washington, D.C. because she's lobbying the U.S. government to uh, pass a bill that would that would call upon the government of Japan to take full legal and moral responsibility and to issue a healing responsibility that would satisfy these victims because they had the, the Japanese government had given apologies before, but they were kind of tepid. And they didn't, they angered the, the victims rather than bring closure and healing. And so when this activist told me, oh yeah, the, this this 83 year old survivor is gonna, you know, she, she's gonna be there in DC. Are you interested? I think the press conference was like the next day. <laughs> and I just, I was Packed like, your you bags know what? And just... Yeah, I, I did, I did. And um, so I had to call a mentor because I really believe in not, not being like a lone ranger that we need, you know, the safety of our mentors, the safety of, of good friends. And 
So I just ran it by my mentor, Nancy Patterson at the time and said, I know this is going to sound bonkers, but <laughs> I feel like I think I need to go, even though it means I would have to book a ticket, fly, you know, drive, take a ferry and, and drive all the way to Seattle. That would take three hours. I don't have a hotel booked, but do you think I should go? And we both felt peace. And that's, that's one indicator for me. Like if, if I feel peace, if I, if I feel uncomfortable that this has stayed with me all my life and, mm -hmm. and throughout my career. And I just felt like, you know what, I, I need to go. So that's how I met this woman um, who, you know, she reminded me of the Holocaust survivors that I had seen in high school and at different conferences. And I always had this awe and reverence for these survivors because they were like walking history books. And I just had this passion after she asked me to tell her story with, to the world because she knew I was interviewing her as a journalist. And she asked me that. And I that was when it, it, it struck me that, oh gosh, I do need to tell her story to the world. And maybe this can be a book, but I first started with an op-ed and which is a good small step for anybody. And, um, and then that's, that's how, that's how it culminated into a book. I'll be it like 14 years later. And, and I was really ashamed of, um, you know, taking so bloody long and not finishing and being able to show Kim Sundok and and half a dozen of the survivors because i you know i took so dang long <laughs> it's it's a lot to process which you know you tackle really heavy subjects and you know it's it's no walk in the park how do you process that as as an author to really yeah. write it in a way that's it's compelling for for the for the readers but also to not let it haunt you because it, it's yeah. it's yeah. very haunting Exactly. And, and you would appreciate that as, as a journalist yourself, as you've done heavy stories, um, sometimes it, it comes at a cost, at, at a personal cost. And that's just part of the package. And it was a decision that I had made uh, as an act of my will to, um, you know, no matter what. And I'm going to go in there, you know, Rambo style, and I'm going to try to finish. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, I mean, I, I cringe when I, I mean, I'm not, I don't feel like a warrior, but sometimes you got to just push through. And I've had secondary trauma. I've had secondary PTSD. And these, these uh, Japanese military sex slavery survivors, these comfort women survivors all had it. I mean, they had it even after 50, 60, 75 years after they were enslaved, you know? So really the driving force of documenting it, documenting for the voiceless women who had no voice. And I identified with that because I felt voiceless and disenfranchised as a child, you know, with no role models, you know, growing up. So hence, I just felt like, you know, there's a parallel to my story in a way, except, you know, I had choices. And so that's another driving force for me that, you know, we, we can fly anywhere. We can go anywhere. We've had education. We have salaries. I mean, 100 years ago, and this is what I tell young girls all the time when, you know, in classes or, or if someone's saying, oh, I'm so discouraged with my life and, oh, you know, my colleague this, my boss that. And I'm like, dude, 
hundred years ago, your foot would have been bound if you were in China. Yes. Or right. Or fifty years ago, it wouldn't be you and I in this position. Yes. Exactly. You know, and so that's yeah, that's sobering, isn't it? So, and they suffered so much, and you know, and I have we have privileges, Noreen. So, I guess it. I tried in the beginning to just try to soak it up. I didn't have boundaries. I was very foolish and naive. And later, I I grew, I grew more boundaries as the wisdom kind of trickled in. And um, yeah, so I I tried to process it. But if it gets too heavy, you know, I'll I'll see a therapist. I'll I'll talk to my friends. I will pray. I have a Christian faith, so I'll pray. Um, my faith is a very big part of of what I do, and and I think that helps. You know, knowing that there's a bigger picture that it's it's not you know it's not just about me that we're not just finite and you know the world ends at a certain point. Like I just feel like there's a bigger purpose in in all of this and i think that helps too and that was sylvia u friedman on thursday's one two three show and her book is called a long road to justice stories from the front lines in asia love is something that everyone is looking for and remember those days where we experienced young love and felt like it was going to last forever well, the Aphrodite Project helps thousands of students across the globe find a date. Kyle Jie asks its Hong Kong U project managers, Mian and Toby, about the organization and how its matchmaking works. We use a modified algorithm that's inspired and built upon the Gale Sharply Stable Matching algorithm to find your ideal stable match from the entire student population from your school. Stable matches all compatible people according to gender and other deal breakers are matched together such that there are no two other compatible people who would both rather have each other than their current partners. And our matchmaking is for all participants. That means we advocate for diversity and inclusion. Uh, our questionnaire is designed in a way that is friendly to all people of different ethnicity, uh, different religion, different sexual orientation, different genders, and of different background of all sorts. We welcome everyone to join and partake in this experience of making connections. So at its core, it is a dating app for uni students, basically, right? Sort of. Uh, in a sense, it's different from the typical uh, dating app you we all know of. The way we do it is you won't see the other person until you got matched. And the way we do this is we do the matchmaking through the answer of a questionnaire we carefully designed. Um, our team is consisting of people from engineering and also from psychology majors, and they uh, put a lot of effort in designing the questionnaires to match make people through their personalities and their interests, personal beliefs, and so on. Uh, we aim to match make people through uh, who they are inside. That's how relationships, friendships, or romantic last. So, how did you both get involved with the project? I started the Hong Kong chapter, uh, so uh, the story is that I met the uh, creator of this project, Aiden, who is uh, who graduated from uh, the National University of Singapore. 
Uh, I met him during my exchange in Canada, University of Waterloo. Back then, in early 2020, he's been uh, push expanding this project uh, outside of Singapore to Canada and to North America, different unis. Later on, uh, he reached out to me in uh, early 2021, uh, asked if I am interested in expanding it to uh, Hong Kong, my own university, uh, HKU, and I got on board, and the rest is history. So how I joined was... In 2021, I was also a participant of the Aphrodite project, and I found it very meaningful, although I didn't get to meet the mesh that I got mashed with. Anyway, so in 2022, um, I saw an email recruiting another project manager, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to be part of the team because I think my values in dating align with the values of and the core of this project. So... That's how I join and be part of it. So it's been going on at least at HKU since 2020 or Valentine's Day 2021, right? Mm-hmm. And you've had at least two years of the uh, project, right? So what improvements have been made over the years? Uh, I can start this off with a funny story. Uh, in my first in the initial run, uh, I, of course, encouraged my friends to uh, take part in this matchmaking initiative. Um, and I myself was uh, part of it as well. And when I got the matchmaking results, funny enough, I matched with one of my long-term friends. This brings me to one of our newest features. Like we discussed this internally. We realized that there are people that got matched with uh, pe- uh, people they known for a long time. And they reflect that even though that means the algorithm is working, like you get matched with people that are aligned with your interests and personalities it's not really helping with the uh, purpose of this project which is to meet new people uh, have new connections so we now have a function uh, the block list yes Mm. the block list function Um, it sounds a bit harsh but really it just helps you to rule out people that you probably already know or that uh, uh, you know that you would not want to get matched with. Uh, by entering the email, uh, we will automatically rule them out if they are partaking in the project as well. So how has the project been doing at HKU? Um, in HKU so far, in both years, we have at least 400 students participating from um, different majors, different genders, and we are looking to... Um, push the participant numbers a bit more in in the future and both years uh although we have a lot of plans lined up for uh promotion and all it got a bit affected by the pandemic um we hope that in in our next run perhaps our scale of the project uh can be pushed further and we can uh expand further without the limitations of the pandemic. Yeah, we want to spread uh, love through the pandemic or even after the pandemic, yeah. But how has it been like trying to start this project at HKU given the dating scene in Hong Kong or the dating culture in Hong Kong? It took a bit effort to break into the scene. Um, uh, We have a lot of effort in uh, promoting this uh, initiative uh, through different 
channels within school, different uh, student associations, um, and sometimes even the official um, school's uh, promotional uh, email list. And one difficulty we face is that Hong Kong students' community tend to be very niched, and there's no centralized way to push messages uh, to the student body uh, in a sense uh, for like casual student initiatives and so on. So that's one big problem we face. And uh, one more thing on that uh, is the culture on dating in general. It seems that a lot of local students are not that open to the concept of using online dating service. There might be some sort of stigmatism towards it. And I think our project can break that mold uh, since our project is focusing more on personality and genuine connections. We hope to expand further and to break the stereotypes that students have in their mind. True. Um, at least we want students to, of students who join this project has the courage to uh, reach out to their match. I think this is will this will be a big step already for students in Hong Kong, because I do have an experience of reaching out to my match, but my match not reply me back. So I've kind of wasted an opportunity to meet someone new. And that was Mian and Toby from the Aphrodite Project from the University of Hong Kong talking to Kyle Jair about helping students find love. Well, kids, you should also be focusing on your studies. Yep, I think, yep, I sound a bit too old, don't I? I sound a bit like what my grandma would say. Anyway, let me finally leave you with some good old-fashioned music entertainment. Steve James with Wednesday's Afternoon Drive. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Until next week, bye for now. The factories may be roaring With the boom a lack zoom a lack But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four Everything stops for tea Oh, the golfer may be golfing And is just about to make a hole in three But it always gets in four when the clock yells four Everything stops for tea Afternoon tea break for a Wednesday afternoon is a handful of Beatles tunes And we start off with a rare one if you own this on a single Yeah.
Do. 